Chris, what's up, man? What's going on, bud? How are you? You're in here ready to rock. Yeah, man. I always appreciate talking to you, man. You're just the positivity is is something <laughs> that it, it really needs to be appreciated and highlighted every time. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I try to bring the energy. Where uh, where are you bringing the energy from? I am inside the Magnolia Hotel in downtown Denver. Excuse me. There you go. Um, I mean, do you, as a beat writer following every game as a a chapter of a book, get a little disappointed um, when injuries happen and there just isn't uh, a heavy hitting lineup ahead of you for the evening? Yes, especially when you think it's going to be you know, one of the best teams from the Eastern Conference against one of the best teams from the Western Conference. And, like, the Cavs haven't been very good on the road, and this was, like, a test for them to see how much they've grown going into this road trip. Like, all those different storylines. So for them to have to to play this game without Donovan Mitchell, it's it's definitely a buzzkill. There's no doubt about that. Especially following the – in the week of the that was – that included the 71-point outburst, yeah. which – I'll say it. I'll say this publicly. When I was watching it, as the play was live, I was a little, quite a little, little questioning of how early he left that free throw line. I just want to say. I just want to say. <laughs> You're not the only one. I think there were a lot of people that were like, wait a minute. Are we sure about that one? But it's funny, Jake, because if you look at the replay of it, the referee's not even looking at the line. The referee's looking at the clock, so I can understand why they missed it, like the mechanics of why they missed it, but that was a pretty egregious miss at a pretty important time of the game. So are you are you throwing an asterisk on the 71 points? Are you ready to go that far? No, I wouldn't do that. It doesn't change the fact that he made that layup. It gave him 58 points. He scored 13 more in overtime doesn't change the fact that the Cavs won that game in overtime. Like, there are things that happen throughout the course of games, unfortunately, that referees miss. And we see the last two-minute report all the time. Like, if you go back to the New Year's Eve game between the Cavs and the Bulls, um, the last two-minute report showed that Karis LeVert fouled uh, DeMar DeRozan on his game-winning shot attempt. He would have gotten two free throws. Who knows how that would have ended up. So we see the last two-minute report all the time with mistakes, and these guys are human. But it doesn't change the outcome of the game. It doesn't change the fact that Donovan then went on to score 13 more points, and then he scored 71, and he joined the 70-point club. So no, I'm not putting any kind of asterisk on that, especially when it's a human error element involved. Here's my take from someone who never really gives takes. (laughs) I just think any record that occurs in overtime needs an OT, not an asterisk, but a little OT label. Like, I forget. Uh, Like, like whenever someone, or maybe even, I don't remember. I think maybe even when Steph broke the three-point record for a game, it was in overtime. Like, to me, it just feels a little, a little, eh, a little, little, I don't know, suspect. When it's just, it's a different, especially in this, it's analytical error we're in now where everything's being evaluated by possession, right? Or per minute yeah. stats. When you get, if you get five extra minutes, I mean, 
And, and yeah. it's also a, a credit to Donovan and how much he was able to put up in that extra time too. Because I, mean, I remember watching it live with a buddy on my couch and how locked in he was. Yep. At, at the four-minute mark of the third, there was like 355 left. I, I, I remember Love swung it up to him on the wing. And he just did a quick little pivot or a jab step fire. Like, didn't even see the defense. Like, yeah. I, I said to my buddy, he's getting 70. Like, it's not even close. And that's just the, the, the kind of firepower that we're seeing across the league right now. It's, it's amazing the, the, the scoring uh, chops that we're seeing on a night-to-night display here. Jake, the fascinating thing to me about the other night with Donovan going for 71, he had 16 in the first half. 16. That's it. He had five at the end of the first quarter. He missed five of his first seven shots. So usually, like, you get these signs from guys that is like, okay, it's going to be one of those nights. He's just in the zone. He's making everything that he throws up. But early in the game, it wasn't like that at all. And then at halftime, J.B. Bickerstaff lit into the team. Jared Allen called it a monumental speech that J.B. gave. And I was talking to Donovan's longtime trainer, Murphy Grant, the other day, who is now with Donovan here in Cleveland. They brought him from Utah with Donovan. And he said, at halftime, I saw a different look in Donovan's eyes. We both gave each other the same look, the nonverbal communication that you can only have when you've worked with a guy for so long. And he was like, at that moment, I knew that Donovan was about to go out in the second half and do something special. Now, Murphy said, like, I didn't know that it was going to be 71 special. I didn't know it was going to be Cavaliers franchise record special. But you could just see a different level of focus, determination, and intensity in his eyes. He scored 24 points in the third quarter alone, 55 in the second half in overtime. That, to me, was what was most incredible about his night the other night. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, as I, as I wrote this week at Yahoo, I think it was just one little, as much as it's a big story and it was an awesome game and an awesome performance, it's yeah. only one of a series of games and moments this season where you've shown just how good, or this team has shown just how good they are. Um, and I think the fact that earlier in this season, and I think, I still would maybe give this answer Uh that Darius showed potentially even more creation ability than Donovan. And this Mm -hmm. is, that's someone who just scored 71 points and was the only person to ever throw 10 assists in addition to scoring 70 as well. Like that's a pretty damn high uh, capacity for creation ability Um, to have two of those guys and to have a front court, defensively but also with scoring and a little bit of passing ability for both of them and Evan shooting has been such a storyline to follow with this team as well right I, and and Cleveland I know I'm rambling but we're, we're having a podcast and, Cle- and Cleveland at the start of last year people forget was right up in the top tier of this yeah. Eastern Conference until injuries took a toll um and I didn't even really remember it so thoroughly until I was reminded this week um, that Karis LeVert only played 19 games for this team after the trade deadline last yep. season. So yep. all that's to say, I am, and I think everyone I've really spoken with around the league, you know, 
people are looking at this team as a bonafide Eastern Conference threat. And should they be just as likely in, in consideration um, as the Milwaukee Bucks or the Boston Celtics or mm. Brooklyn or Philadelphia? Who's to say? But right. they're clearly just as talented and they're clearly going to be just as fearsome or at least like induce as much fear on the opposite sideline from the coaches scouting uh, to defend this team and score against them. So um, is that something you're feeling on the ground there? Are they, are they buying in and walking and talking as a unit that should be in those conversations? Yes. I absolutely feel that there is a different level of belief Like, this was a group that won 44 games last year and advanced to the play-in tournament. And they were looking at it saying, we're going in the right direction. We have a lot here. We're really, really excited about our future. And they should have felt like that. But the minute that they traded for Donovan Mitchell, it not only validated that belief and that hope that they already had, but it took it to a different kind of level. So Donovan has brought a different level of belief within that locker room. And it's interesting because I've been talking to Kevin Love about this recently. You know, he's been on finals teams. He knows what it looks like. He knows what it takes. And he's been more critical of some of the slip-ups with the Cavs. And a big reason for that, Jake, is because Kevin sees greatness in this team. And he doesn't want this team to squander it. He thinks they're special. He thinks what's going on behind the scenes, not just on the court, but behind the scenes – It's a special, connected, together group that you don't get every single year. So when you have that, you have to capitalize on it. You have to take advantage of it. And I think the other thing that is going on here with the Cavs and and them thinking, hey, why not us? Why can't we be in the conversation with Boston, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, and Brooklyn? Like, none of those teams are infallible. You know, I I think Boston is great and their offense is ridiculous. And I think they're going to be a great defensive team now that Robert Williams is back in the lineup and all those different things. (laughs) Flaws too, you know, Milwaukee is a flawed team as well. And, And Brooklyn's just like on a completely different level right now rolling. But I guess my big point is that there isn't that team, whether it's in the Eastern Conference or in the NBA, Jake, where you look at them and say, clear-cut favorite, nobody else is even close to them. You know what I mean? Agree. Agree. I mean, it's it's just – I think the fact that they're so young too, it just lends credence to the idea that they potentially have more room to grow. And you mentioned Boston's defense rising to a greater level of Robert Robert Williams coming back. Right. We just don't know what Evan Mobley come look, could look like come April, you know? Yeah. Like, especially yeah. as he's missed so much time already this year due to injury. Um, yeah. And Garland, as uh, effective as he already is, he's still, um, you know, very far, far closer to the beginning of his career than retirement, right? So right. it's it's very interesting. I mean, even to, to kind of switch this into the trade market a little bit, mm-hmm. like even Isaac Cora, who – Cavs people I've talked to and people around the team I've talked to still definitely speak highly and optimistically that he should be someone in theory that could continue to improve and make strides throughout the season to the point he's capable of 
filling the starting small forward position that they were hoping he would when they drafted him fifth overall. Um, so there's just a lot of element of potential growth right. and organic growth before they even look outside and externally at potential additions. That, that's how I'm seeing it, and that's, that seems to be something that people are at least uh, considering as well. I think that's a really good point, Jake. And if you think about it, the Cavs are 25 and 14 right now. They're fourth in the Eastern Conference, despite the fact that they've used 17 different starting lineups, 17 different starting lineups, despite the fact that Ricky Rubio, who is going to be in their every night rotation, and he's going to be a key piece of that second unit. And when he was healthy last year, was playing like a six man of the year candidate. They haven't even had him. He hasn't even made his season debut yet. And despite the fact that the Cavs have been shuffling their starting small forward because at first it was Karis LeVert, then it became Lamar Stevens, then Isaac Coro. So, like, there have been a lot of different things that the Cavs have encountered throughout the course of the first half of this season. And in spite of that, they're 25 and 14. And that doesn't even talk about the way that they've just forgotten how to play basketball at times on the road. And they couldn't close games in the fourth quarter on the road. It was just mesmerizing to me to see them throw the ball away, settle for terrible shots, completely malfunction on the offensive end of the floor. And like those things, I think they're going to be able to learn from. I think there are signs that they have started to learn from them. And just the way that they're constructed, they are a team that believes deep down they are going to be better in March, April, and May than they are right now because Darius and Donovan are going to get more time together because Evan Mobley is going to continue to evolve because Darius is going to continue to get more experience in late fourth quarter games that matter because Ricky Rubio is going to come back because Dean Wade's going to come back. So their goal all along, Jake, has been let's be at our best towards the end of the year. And I think there's some logic behind that. And I think that's a real possibility for this group. I think they can continue to evolve as they get more and more experience and more game reps together. Because that's the thing. Brooklyn, Milwaukee, and Boston, Philadelphia too, they all have that edge on the Cavs. Inexperience is Cleveland's greatest enemy. And there's nothing that they can do about that. But the more you learn, the more you experience, the better you're going to be. And sometimes you just have to go through these things together. And sometimes you have to fail at these things before you actually figure it out. And I think everything that happens throughout the course of this regular season is going to be beneficial for the Cavs when the playoffs roll around because it's the kind of experience that they don't have that they need to gain along the way. So you mentioned a lot of names there. Karis LeVert, yep. Mark Evans, Dean Wade. We mentioned Isaac. Um, I mean, Chetty Osmond's floating around that wing conversation as well. What have you seen this season and also in years past um, that, look, if this doesn't I, – I wouldn't be surprised if Cleveland wakes up on February 10th and they haven't made a trade at all, let alone yeah. a trade that has brought back someone who is objectively – a head and a shoulder above all those guys. Right. So speaking through uh, lens, the lens of, of relevant context and as being as realistic and pragmatic as possible, <laughs> that's, 
Like, if if that's if that's what happens, and they haven't added anybody, which of those in-house options, and specifically with their synergy next to those four guys yep. in Donovan, Darius, Evan, and Jarrett, of course, the big four up there. Which option at the small forward do you think is probably the most optimal, or at least in terms of a setup with the rotation? Because I know there's a lot of thought to how valuable Karras can be in second units. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what 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 is kind of the solution that you would uh, hedge your basketball chops on if the Cleveland front office opened their doors and asked you for your opinion? I'd say Dean Wade, Jake. And I've been saying, yeah, I've been saying Dean Wade since the beginning of the season. And look, there are multiple members of this organization that have felt since day one, even going back to the offseason and training camp in the preseason, that Dean should have been the starting small forward at the beginning of the year, not Karis LeVert. But I understand why JB went with Karis. He had a great offseason. He came into training camp in great shape. He was one of their best performers in training camp, and he had a terrific preseason. So if you're going to have a small forward competition, you better reward the guy who was the best. And Karras was the best performer of anybody else. But I never thought he was the best fit. And I still don't think he would be a good fit in a starting lineup or a closing lineup alongside Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell. Because they're just too ball dominant. And the thing that I like about Dean Wade You know, one of the issues that the Cavs have, I think, at small forward is that every decision that J.B. Bickerstaff makes is a give and take, right? And what I mean by that is if he goes with Lamar Stevens, it's because of his tough, rugged defense. And Lamar has been very, very good against some upper echelon scorers throughout the course of this season, including Giannis. Um, But Lamar doesn't bring a lot offensively. Teams ignore Lamar at the three-point line, so it restricts the Cavs' spacing offensively, and it's really, in some ways, like playing four-on-five. And it's the same thing with Isaac Okoro. So, yeah, JB's getting the defense from both of those guys that he would want, but he's losing something offensively with every decision that he makes with those guys. And you can flip it the other way, right? Like, Karis LeVert's been better defensively this year. Teammates have been impressed with him. But the reason why you go with him is because of his offense, because of his shot creation, because of his scoring ability. So you lose a little bit defensively going from Lamar to Karis or Isaac to Karis. But you gain a bunch offensively. To me, Dean Wade is the best blend of offense and defense. His impact metrics on the defensive end are very, very good. He's got awesome feet. He's strong. He's sturdy. He's got the size. And then offensively, opposing teams can't leave him at the three-point line the way that they can with Isaac and Lamar Stevens. They just can't. There's a different level of respect that Dean has because he can knock down those shots at a high clip. So, it, it helps the Cavs' offensive spacing. It gives them another three-point shooter. So to me, if we're just talking about internal options alone, Dean Wade is the best blend of offense-defense, and he's the kind of low-maintenance, low-usage player that can thrive next to a team that is going to be defined by what Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell do. Like, everything with this offense, Jake, 
it goes through Darius and Donovan. And that's not going to change, and that shouldn't change because they're so great and because the Cavs have the 12th best offense running that kind of way. But if you bring a low-maintenance, low-usage player that can play off of those guys that doesn't need the ball in his hands to be effective, like that's what you want from that small forward position. Agreed. And I think, so, in our comment section here, and this is kind of why I wrote this story this week, Mm-hmm. from non-biased NBA fan asking, everyone knows the Cavs are looking for a wing, but what <laughs> defensive wing like Robert Covington, a 3 and D wing like Josh Richardson, a bigger power forward type wing like Jay Crowder. Um, so it's a great question. And I think, I think in a lot of scenarios such as this, you know, when a team identifies a positional need, right? Yep. There isn't always exactly a perfect a perfect answer for that spot. Yes, right. But there are guys that there are seven guys that are theoretically available and you rank them in terms of their price, how much it's going to cost them. You rank them in terms of best fit and you kind of, you know, pile up the numbers or just kind of make an assessment on for what they can bring specifically in your situation at their contract mm-hmm. value and what it's going to cost to acquire them, that, mm-hmm. that kind of leads you in certain directions on who to go chase. So I believe from everything I've been told, I think someone who can hold his own defensively, yep. but the, 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 the ability to provide some spacing on offense, especially playing yep. two big guys like they do, is just so vital to give Darius and Donovan space and whichever one of the two bigs is, is coming up and setting a screen for them to operate. Um, and that's why I, I, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but I, I would think that Bojan would be yeah. at the top of Cleveland's list if Detroit, and this is a big if, uh-huh. if Detroit is ever willing to actually move him because as much as I keep hearing like very specific price points for him in terms of what's when certain teams have asked and what maybe Detroit's been kind of highlighting they would need back. Uh-huh. Uh, like they do keep saying, you know, we're not going to move him, but if we, uh, so it's not <laughs> so direct, it'll happen, but because they're having so many conversations about it, or, or at least that's the impression I'm receiving. Yeah. Uh, if these asking prices are being discussed or talked about, whatever, um, they're at least open to it. So I don't know if that will become a possibility, but I will yield the floor to you in that. Do your, do your thoughts or have what you heard, does it uh, descend from anything I just said at all? Or do you have any more, anything more to add? It doesn't descend from what you said at all. Um, I would add another name. And the Cavs believe this player is available. And my sources tell me that he could be had. It's, again, at the right price. And it's a little bit tricky because he's on a team that's fourth place currently in the Western Conference. Oh. Yeah. Um, Tim Hardaway Jr. is somebody that the Cavs have been watching. And they've been keeping an eye on. And I think if the Cavs had their choice, it would be very, very close. And they're not going to have their choice. It doesn't work that way, right? But if they had their choice, it would be between Boyan and Tim Hardaway Jr. And it's that's 
particularly interesting to me in that if memory serves correctly, before the, the Cavs acquired Karras from Indiana, yes, us put in a bid of sorts, including Tim Hardaway, injured at the time, uh, to obtain Karras' services. So that at least has been a framework that's been explored in the past. Yes. And I think that's like what you have to look at when it comes to the Cavs trying to make any kind of deal at the deadline. You never say never, right? But Evan Mobley, Jared Allen, Donovan Mitchell, Darius Garland aren't going anywhere. So then you have to ask yourself, okay, what are the components that the Cavs could put together that could get a piece that maybe is not going to be a significant impact, but somebody that can crack their rotation, somebody that can give them consistent minutes, somebody that can bring the things to the small forward spot that the options that they have internally can't at the same level anyway. So like those guys are hard to acquire, right, to begin with. Wings are the toughest thing in the NBA to find. And then you talk about the assets that the Cavs don't have. Like They cannot, Jake, they cannot offer a first-round pick. They can't. Like They can change some protections on some of the first-round picks that they have, but they can't offer a first-round pick at the trade deadline by rule. So it's like... <laughs> So it's like, what do they offer? And you start with Karras because it's logical, because you feel like his skill set is kind of a duplicate and because his contract situation and expiring contract and because it matches with like Bogdanovich and Tim Hardaway Jr. and Kelly Oubre Jr. and like some of those other names. Um, So that way the Cavs don't have to take back more players. They don't have to stack more players on top. And, like, from a salary standpoint, it's kind of an even swap. And then, like, Isaac Okoro comes into the mix. And I've been told that the Cavs are not going to trade Isaac unless they get a significant piece back in return. And I don't know who fits that profile. I don't know which name fits that profile. But I'm talking, like, somebody who's in their top five or six players. Like, that's the kind of... I I would say a name. And, um, like, I mean, if... That was the price that Toronto needed to give up OG Ananobi. Yes. I mean, that's the type of player that we're talking about. That's a very good name. Like, that's the kind of player that the Cavs would be willing to part with Isaac for. But they still like him. They believe in him. He's young. He's a hard worker. He's low maintenance. He fits the culture really, really well. Um and, and J.B. Bickerstaff likes the other things that he brings to the table, like the intangible things and the defense as well. So even though he's not where he needs to be offensively, especially for a team that has playoff aspirations, like he's still bringing value other ways. And then you talk about Jetty Osman, and then you talk about future second-round picks. So the capital that the Cavs have right now to make a deal is very, very minimal, I would say. So that's why I think it's going to be tougher um, for them to make a significant, a quote-unquote significant addition. But Karis Levert's contract and his reputation and the fact that he's a help-now player for some of these other teams, I think that opens the door for some other possibilities um, like like Hardaway, maybe Bogdanovich, if the if the price tag comes down a little bit. I mean, I, I really like the idea of the Hardaway swap. I agree. Because here, 
so here's several different things about Dallas. Like, I mean, they clearly have a weird situation in their front court where they gave JaVale McGee a massive salary, I believe a yeah. three-year contract, and he's not even in the rotation right now. Right. You got the whole Christian Wood dynamic where he's up for an extension and wants to get paid. Um, and there was a whole thing with the coaching staff and not believing in his defense and not restarting and they're doing really well. Then Maxi Cleva might be hurt for and after the year. Dwight Powell's still around. But another consistent thing you hear about is them looking for added creation ability, you know, with the departure of Jalen Brunson. That was why they wanted to explore Kemba. Uh, So if you could turn, if they could turn THJ into Karras, I I would believe, depending on the cost, because just sitting here for my objective chair, like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) sorry, I got a call. Um, Just sitting here for my chair, like looking at this as the 31st front office, I would think market value, Cleveland would need some type of additional compensation back. Um, yeah. So that, that's why it's not just an obvious th- – that that thing makes sense. Like, why wouldn't it happen, right? Um, right. But if, if they're – I mean, I, I think that just general idea is one that would clearly be of interest to, to Dallas to get that added um, ball handling ability. And – you know, the shortcomings of Hardaway in Dallas, I think, are a little bit less in Cleveland mm-hmm. where, you know, his, his defense doesn't have to be – Right. You know, it doesn't have to be Bruce Bowen out there, you know. Yeah. Like, he's got this, this the same reason that Donovan's able to gamble so aggressively and yeah. Darius's, uh size and other things don't get ex- exposed as badly and they'll have a lot of space. I mean, I, I know – he needs to create the space because we're talking about how little space there is with those two giants out there. Yep. But because Donovan and Darius also shoot from so far away, this is something I, I always have paid attention to um, the last, you know, four or five years or so. Mm-hmm. Like you can, when a guy's a threat to pull up from five feet beyond the arc, it just does so much for yeah. the, the geometry of your offense. And both Darius and Donovan have that, which is, Yep. Kind of a, a secret ingredient, I think, uh, to how this offense works. So, I don't know. I, I, I could see him being very effective in that role in this, even yeah. though he is streaky. Um, and that's kind of been him throughout his career. He certainly uh, has better streaks than the other options currently on Cleveland's bench. Right. To further your point about the unlimited range of both those guys, at the Cavs practice facility – um, they have a four-point line. So they practice and they scrimmage as if that's the kind of spacing that they want. You know what I mean? So if you put, if you put somebody like Tim Hardaway Jr., who can be a guy who goes out and makes seven, eight, nine, three-pointers a night, you put him alongside Darius and Donovan, like what does the defense do? The defense has to stay connected to Tim Hardaway Jr., because of that threat, because of that reputation. And that's going to open things up for Darius and Donovan. But if they start to shade off of Tim Hardaway Jr., then all of a sudden he gets the open threes that Karis LeVert has been getting, right? That Dean Wade can get, that Isaac Okoro and Lamar Stevens. It just changes the dynamic of the Cavs offense. And, And he's not a prototypical three, right? He's more of a two than a three, but, but that kind of skill set that he brings to the table with the floor spacing, with the shooting, 
that's something that is very, very attractive to the Cavs. Now, there are a couple of other layers to this, and I'm sure you know these as well, Jake, but the Cavs are about $2.5 million away from the luxury tax. They're not willing to go into the luxury tax. And Hardaway, if the Cavs were to acquire him, that's taking on more money for the next two years, mm-hmm. whereas Karis LeVert is an expiring contract. And if they don't love the fit of Karis, they theoretically could just move on from him at the end of the year. And it helps their salary cap flexibility and stuff like that. Um, so that's something that, that has to be considered. But at the end of the day, to me, it's a logical stylistic swap where Dallas gets the kind of player in Levert that it needs to take some of the pressure off of Luka, some of the ball handling, some of the shot creation. And the Cavs, even though they like Levert and they value the things that he can bring to the second unit, they get a stylistic fit um, that, that would help out their offense and maybe even take their offense to a different kind of level, especially in a seven-game series. Um, sorry, I just got a text from somebody. Um, is the people are asking JWWWWWW, how many W's is asking, is the Sadiq Bay thing real? What's the Sadiq Bay thing? Has that been a rumor? I think that's been a rumor simply because, like, if you look at the kind of player that the Cavs need on this roster, Sadiq Bay would fit that. But if the price tag for Sadiq Bay is a first-round pick, the Cavs aren't giving up a first-round pick to trade. First of all, they can't. But in theory, they wouldn't give up a first-round pick for Sadiq and then turn around and have to pay him a big contract. That's not happening. Yeah. Um, I wrote, speaking of like needing to give big contracts, and, and Jay Crowder's not looking for a massive deal, but he's looking for a, a, a significant one. Um, I have not heard Cleveland as a team that Bible spot for him. Yeah. Um, is that check out with what, with your knowledge of this team? To my knowledge, the Cavs did not enjoy the first Jay Crowder experience and they want nothing to do with the second go around. There you go. Um, are, are there other targets to, to keep in mind? Are there other teams that you're looking at to see, if a player might become available just as so many teams around the league are that um, maybe could be uh, a hand and glove fit here. And other than that, um, I don't really know what else to ask you, man. I I think we've kind of touched on all these topics. You've been great and fantastic as always. I have a question for you. Yeah. And this is just a name that I've kicked around for myself because of the kind of player that the Cavs covet. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know that they would have the pieces to make this work. I don't know that if there was a bidding war that they would win. Is Grant Williams available for the Celtics? That's a good question. Because of his contract situation is why I'm asking. Yeah. I don't believe so. Yeah, I don't think so either. Grant's in a tricky spot in that he, I mean, I think, Maybe I shouldn't say this out loud to spoil my idea to the competition that could be listening. Oh, geez. I want to write, I want to write something at some point after the trade deadline about the mechanism of restricted free agency, because it's not really working. It doesn't benefit anybody. Mm. I mean, the only, like, 
it doesn't really even benefit the teams who are it's theory protecting them losing their former first round picks um, because it just creates awkward situations that you don't need to be in. So for Grant, like the Celtics would like to keep him for sure. That's been very consistent. He's a key part of that team. He's probably going to end up playing the six most minutes of anybody on that team as they go into the playoffs. That's just mm-hmm. what um, is the reality of the situation. And while they were off by a few million dollars in AAV this summer, he, being that he is restricted, yeah, no one is expecting a team to come in and give Grant an offer in right. that he, the Celtics is probably just going to match it anyway. Mm-hmm. And so in that regard, you probably have to go to a really high number to get Boston to consider not doing that. Yeah. And Grant's just not the type of player like, like a Jeremy Grant back in leaving Denver, even when Jeremy, that, that number was the same he got from Detroit and he wasn't restricted, but I'm just th- trying to throw a comparison of like, yeah, bit player who a team would throw a lot of money at to try to put in a number one or number two spot. No one's doing that with Grant. So he's probably, they don't want to move him. He's probably in a situation where he could be lingering a little bit later into free agency, waiting for a team to bring him an offer to get Mm -hmm. Boston to match it because Mm -hmm. Boston won't have any, I mean, this is a business. Like I was talking to an agent about this earlier in the week. Like, doesn't matter if you want to home grow your guys and have your culture and blah, blah, blah. Like at the end of the day, if you could save $3 million a year on Grant Williams contract, a difference between like 15 and 12 million, because you can like you're, you, you just said the Cavs are only two and a half million below the luxury tax line. And that's, that's governing some of their moves here. Like yeah. saving 3 million could be the difference between anything down the line. So yeah. all that's to say, I don't think he's a real possibility for Cleveland, no. I think the other thing that complicates the whole trade deadline discussion is that a lot of teams feel like they're in it still. Of course. I mean, the the play-in tournament obviously has expanded it, but even beyond that, there's just, like, not that team that stands out above the rest in the NBA where these other teams are like, oh, my God, like, how are we supposed to deal with X team in a seven-game series? And if you think about even in the Eastern Conference, Toronto has been awful this year, but they're just a game out of being in a play-in spot. Um, So there aren't that many clearly defined sellers. And the ones that are clearly defined sellers, I would say Orlando, Detroit, Charlotte, Houston, San Antonio, I don't know that they have the pieces that teams would covet all that much. Like they have okay guys, Josh Richardson, okay. Doug McDermott, okay. Eric Gordon, okay. Terrence Ross, I'm told that the Cavs aren't all that interested in him. Like the names that the Cavs and some of these other wing needy teams would want to get involved in, like those teams still have some games to play here over the next week, two weeks, three weeks, to determine, okay, what direction are we going to go at the trade deadline? But yeah. with how wide open it is in both conferences, I'm not sure that teams are going to be all that motivated to become sellers. I agree. And that's why you're hearing that teams are looking at Toronto and looking at Chicago mm-hmm. and hoping mm-hmm. that there will be more sellers entering this marketplace. Because right now, if you look at the standings, it's not hard to determine 
that there's really only two bona fide sellers in both conferences. That's it. You got Detroit and Charlotte in the East, and even with Detroit, I mean Orlando as well. That's three. Yeah. But with Detroit, because you can bring it back down to two, Detroit is telling teams that they're not really dying to move Bojan, and they're not yeah. really dying to move Alec Burks. So that leaves guys like Nerlens Noel, who are I mean, maybe there'll be a couple of situations where teams do both, where they do a little sell, or they take mm. back something of value now. Um, but you look at the Western Conference and – I mean, the Thunder, as much as they are mired in a rebuild, and they look fantastic, too. I mean, Shea Gildas-Alexander had a pretty strong showing in um, all-star voting here. Like, they, like Mike Muscala is not a player that teams are trying to go get. You know what I'm saying? Right. Not to, right. That's not to besmirch Mike Muscala. But, and, and he's not – I mean, the Thunder are just the Thunder. Like, they're existing in their rebuild, and mm-hmm. they're – adding this thing one brick at a time. Like the Spurs and Rockets are really the only teams that have veterans available as just a pure seller in the West. So there's going to be a lot of movement, I think, um, that looks – or I think a good portion of movement, I'll say that instead, not in terms of a lot of movement, because I don't, I don't know how much movement there will be. I think right. a good portion of the movement we'll see will be deals like how Washington and Dallas did the KP – for Spencer Dinwiddie and Davis Bertans, uh swap, um, and how Washington again traded KCP in the reverse of that um, for Monty Morris and Will Barton. Like I, I think we'll see deals like that. I think we'll see aggregating deals like that, where it's not really exactly a buy and a sell, more of like a swap of, of spare parts for um, you know maybe one man's trash can be another man's treasure type of stuff. Right. Yeah. I can see that. Like, if Houston yeah. made Jay Sean Tate available, for example, I think the Cavs would try and get involved there. If the Minnesota Timberwolves made Kyle Anderson available, and he's not the ideal fit for the Cavs because he yeah. doesn't have great three-point shooting, that great spacing, but that's somebody that the Cavs took a run at in free agency this past offseason. So mm-hmm. I would consider that as well because... I don't, I don't think he'll be available. I think he's pretty cemented in Minnesota's situation, right. yeah. But it's like those kinds of names, like you're hoping for maybe possibly because you want the market to beef up a little bit more than than what it appears to be at this point in time. Like if if the Cavs wanted Terrence Ross, like in the past, they probably could have gotten him many, many times yes. at a relatively low price. But the price like, is lower now than it was then, I'll tell you that. Right, but like, what does that do? Like, he becomes your ninth, tenth guy in your rotation who may play some nights, may not play other nights. How much better is he than the options that you have? Is he good enough defensively? Like, all those different kinds of things. The Cavs aren't in a situation, Jake, where they just want to make a move just to make a move. And and I do think there are some people in the organization that want to see, okay, what does it look like? for an extended period of time with Dean Wade in that spot. And can he be a short-term solution to that problem? Um, I think that's something that they're very interested in. Regard lineup be something that that works for them too. Right. Yeah. That's another thing that they have to figure out. A lot of options, a lot of potential exciting outcomes for Cleveland and for you, my friend. Thank you for the time. I really appreciate it. 
Um, anything you want to plug before you get out of here? No, I think I'm good. You can just check out the website, cleveland.com slash Cavs. You can check me out on Twitter. It's my <laughs> name. Nice and easy. Chris Fedor. There you go, man. Um, enjoy the game this evening. Um, have a great weekend, safe travels, and I hope to see you soon. Always love talking to you, Jake. Take care, buddy. See ya. See ya.